Welcome in once again, Women Really Mean Business, presented by Athena International. Thank you for being here, as always. Great to have you along. And before we get to the show, I want to give you a major pronunciation error I had in the show. As frequent listeners know, I am definitely not perfect, but I always correct myself. So, Catherine Halpin and I was pronouncing it Halpin. It's Catherine Halpin. That's the correct pronunciation. She helps companies increase their value by facilitating a process that allows them to gain better results by involving all layers of the organization. She teaches us that technology has made us reactive and helps us get back to being proactive, which is so important for success. Now, if you want more from Catherine, we have some extras for you. Just go to the top of womenreallymeanbusiness.com and check out the patron section. If you become a patron, we will give you extras from Catherine and our other guests as well. So check it out because you'll not only support this show, but Athena International as well. All right, let's get into it. Women Really Mean Business, presented by Athena International, show number 63, starts now. Welcome to Women Really Mean Business, presented by Athena International, the podcast that tells you the story of how women are impacting business, one guest at a time. Now here's your host, Jeff Bolitnikoff, with another successful woman and her unique business journey. Women Really Mean Business, presented by Athena International. I'm Jeff Blitnikoff, and we have Catherine Halpin, and she owns the Halpin Companies. And the proven methods that they have, let me just tell you a little bit about her and her background. There's a lot that she does. I cannot possibly read everything that she does without running out of breath. And by the way, I'm a swimmer, so if that tells you (laughs) anything about her bio. But uh, their proven methods have helped organizations of all sizes increase their value by 200 to 300 percent that is not a miss say on my part is that even a word miss say well i guess it is now and um she is a strategic advisor to corporate and association boards c-level c-suite executives i should say their teams and strategic partners she is also an author alignment for success bring out the best in yourself your team and your organization and then of course she's got a book coming up what will that take and she's a keynote speaker and well i need to do some more laps in the pool Catherine. i'll tell you what i can't even get through half of it welcome to the podcast Thank you so much jeff you're so kind and i so appreciate the opportunity to be here and share today Oh, it's great to have you. And as uh, folks that listen to this podcast know, and I know that you're a listener as well, you know that I love to turn the mic over to the guest as soon as I possibly can. So, Catherine, I gave them a brief kind of like just the facts part of your bio, but I'd love to hear your bio and then the story behind all of it. So the floor is yours. Welcome again. Oh, thanks so much, Jeff. Well, I'm looking here at Martha Mertz's Eight Principles of the Athena International, and they're really like a manifesto for me. This is how I live my life, and especially the authenticity. So, you know, the first one is live authentically, and so I like to tell people my whole story, not just a beautiful part like you just did about my important work. So I grew up in Mississippi and 
I was able to escape there um, when I was 21 years old. And the reason I needed to escape was because my parents were just such colorful and high-spirited people that they really should never have even married, much less had five children in eight years. So I had to grow up pretty fast and help raise my younger siblings and try to bring some order to the chaos. And so then when I was about eight or nine years old, because I had demonstrated so much leadership in our home, my dad looked at me one day and said, hey, you could come to the office with me on Saturday morning. (laughs) And so I've been working since I was eight or nine. Now, I didn't start working full time, of course. I would just go in for an hour or two on a Saturday. But by the time I was 12, I was going in every afternoon after school. And by the time I was 15, I was a key person in my dad's CPA firm. And I started driving when I was 12. And even in Mississippi, that's really not a good idea to let a 12-year-old drive. But I just had errands to run, so I just got in the car and drove off. And so by the time I was a junior in college, I was getting a little burned out on um, being an indentured servant in my family and in my dad's CPA firm. And, And my dad wanted me to go to college, but he was kind of sexist, and he didn't really care. He had zero interest in me graduating from college. So every semester it became more and more difficult for me to untangle myself from the work commitments and get my tuition money together and, uh, you know, finish my degree. So when I was a junior at the University of Southern Mississippi, I concocted a what I believe is a brilliant plan, and I believe I was divinely inspired. I tell people it couldn't have been clearer if it had been a burning bush or two tablets carved in stone, and the message I got was, you got to get out of here. So I concocted this plan, and I was able to escape, and I got to Dallas, and I went to work for Touche Ross, which at that time was one of the big eight accounting firms, because I had all this great tax experience. They hired me in their tax department as a paraprofessional, and I finished my degree at night over the next few years, and then I got my CPA license in Texas, and then I was working for a CPA firm out of Chicago in 1992 that said it would be a promotion if I came to the to the Phoenix office, and so they moved me and my family to Phoenix, and I didn't like anything about the firm, but I loved Phoenix. We all loved it. I mean, what's not to love? We got here in November. The weather was so beautiful, and it's a grid city, and everybody's from someplace else, so they're so welcoming. So it was at that point that I realized I need to give up being a CPA and find something different to do, but it took me three years. And the way I got out of Mississippi and the way I got out of my CPA firm was by journaling. And today I call that strategic think time. And I have an ebook that called the Respond Not React Playbook that helps you build in habits that give create white space on your calendar so you can take this strategic think time either to solve problems or to learn how to delegate more effectively, coach yourself, or just to think about the gaps that you want to close in your life and in your career or in your business if you're a business owner. So it took me three years. We got here in November of 92, and by the summer of 95, I had heard this term business coach. And in 1995, there were no business coaches, and uh, especially in Phoenix, Arizona. 
But within a month, after saying, oh, that's what I want to be, I don't know what it is, but that's what I want to be, I found a magazine article that came across my desk about career coaches, and it gave an 800 number, and Thomas Leonard, the founder of the coaching profession, answered the telephone when I called the 800 number, and he said, oh, well, with your corporate background, you could be any kind of coach, an executive coach, a corporate coach, any kind of coach at all that you want. So I signed up on the spot for his training program, and my spouse said, well, that's all well and good, but you got to keep your day job. And so I kept my day job, and I coached micro-sized business owners on Saturday mornings at the coffee plantation here in Phoenix on Camelback Road. And then after a year and a half, I had 15 of those tiny clients, and I said to myself and my spouse, I said, if I can keep 15 clients, a portfolio of 15 clients for 90 days, I'm going to give up my job. And she said, I, I think that makes perfect sense. And so, because if you're working 40 hours a week at least, a lot of times I had evening commitments and things with my work. And um, if you're working that kind of schedule and able to keep 15 clients. So in January of 1997, I gave up my job and I had four speaking engagements lined up that week. And I launched my business through speaking and then referrals. And by the summer of 97, I was facilitating. I would say to these small business owners, these are complicated issues. And you and I should not try to brainstorm this ourselves. Let's pull your whole team together and I'll be the facilitator and we'll brainstorm and come up with a plan of action. So for most of these past 22 years, I've been a facilitator of processes that I didn't know this in the beginning, but when you bring people together and you encourage them and empower them and engage them in new and different ways, it grows the, the value of the company usually by two to three X because they feel safer to experiment, they feel safer to take risks, they feel safer to say what's on their mind. And so that's how I've been so successful, purely by accident, not at all by design. But I love this work. It doesn't feel like work. I feel like I haven't worked a day since um, I gave up my CPA career. There's something I feel so blessed. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a. Uh, and again, it doesn't surprise me that you've had so much success because the people that do get a lot of success are those folks that, as you say, you don't feel like you're really working you're really just kind of working your passion is that fair to say right exactly exactly it doesn't feel like work i'm so passionate about a couple of things getting the right people in the right roles based on people's strengths because of course as a cpa i was not in the right role i was always like a square peg trying to fit into a round hole and then the other thing I'm passionate about is inclusion. I want to make sure everybody gets to be heard and, and gets to be heard in a way that the executives can really hear it. Because sometimes there are mechanisms, you know, to give those frontline employees a voice, but sometimes they're not really fully heard by the executives. And my, in my experience, and I've seen a lot, if something's going to go south, a new strategic initiative or a new project, there are red flags six years sometimes, six months, six weeks, certainly six days in advance. And it's those frontline people that know that. The executives don't always see those red flags. But the frontline people do, some engineer somewhere or IT professional or accountant, they see it. And we just have to give them a, a voice and give them a vehicle. So that's what I'm, I'm, I'm so passionate about, those things. And, 
And even at the board level, sometimes people feel like they don't have a voice, or certainly in the C-suite, people don't always feel safe to speak up. So that's what I'm all about, making people feel really safe. And uh, get, and and make and facilitating it in a way that they really are heard. People really can hear them. Well, I want to dig into that in just a second because I want to hear about the process that you take people through. But there's something that really piqued my interest as you were talking, and it was that it seems to me that your method is really steeped and it's probably not even really fair to call it a method it's really a philosophy that's probably yeah. a better way to yeah. better way to put it and so it seems like it's intention without emotion is really kind of the basis Beautiful. of what i'm hearing here is that is, yeah. do i have that right yeah Yes, very beautifully stated. Yeah, I'm writing that down because I'm stealing that, Jeff. You're so good. Yeah, so it's being intentional. What do you want to create? You you would be shocked how many times I ask a business owner, okay, well, what's next? What do you want to create? And they cannot articulate it even to themselves. So that's where the strategic think time comes in. I'll say, okay, well, you go off and you take two hours, either Friday afternoon or Sunday evening, find two hours, and you sit with a blank legal pad or your iPad and you start making some notes. And if you give yourself that gift of time, things will emerge. You'll have more clarity. Oh, I want to, you know, not work as hard. I want to have more time with my family. Or I want to, you know, really grow my people. I don't want to, you know, be the go-to guy. I don't want to be the hub of the wheel. So they, they'll give it, you know, they can, I can facilitate that. And sometimes they can't do it by themselves. We'll take two hours together and I'll just keep asking questions. Is it this or is it that? Is it more of this, less of that? And then I'll get it all written down and then we'll have now a roadmap for what we want to create together. But people, we just don't, in our culture today, we just don't inspire or train people to say what their needs are and what's most important to them and and what works for them and what doesn't work for them. So I'm their strategic thinking partner in that process. And you really do have to take the emotion out of it, because I heard you say something like that earlier in the interview, because when you make decisions from an emotional level, and even when you're happy or sad or whatever, it doesn't matter. The range of emotions that you're feeling, if you let that and I'm not saying, hey, we are creatures that have emotions, so you can't completely sure, take, take those out. But when you start making a decision that's too much with that emotional part in there, then right. I don't think you get as clear of a vision for the future as you could have if you just, as you say, take that two or three hours, strategically think about it from all angles, and then proceed from there. Exactly, and try to stay focused on the facts. You cannot believe how many people I've had to train and help them bring that discipline because because we are human beings, we're going to always react, and that's going to be an emotional reaction. And we and we don't even stop there. We make up stories about, oh, I know Bob, that's why Bob said that, or I know Betty Sue, and I think what she really meant to say was blah, blah, blah. And that's not true. we got to stay focused on the facts because otherwise we're, it's just, we're going to get chaos because everybody's going to be bringing their emotions. Well, let's talk about what helping companies does for people. In fact, I'm going to call this, if you could, and maybe this is not even the right way to say it because we're all individuals, So, uh, but this is the best way I can think of it is if you could clone not necessarily people, 
but a way of thinking and looking at things. That's that's the way I want to put it. If you could if you could clone a way of thinking in an organization, like if you if I gave you a wand right now and you could just wave it and clone this type of thinking from your philosophy and how you are teaching organizations, individuals, whatnot, what would be the way of thinking? What what are some things that are lacking today that people really need? If we really want to move forward into the future, what are some things that we must adopt now? This is a perfect question. I can talk. I could give you a three-day symposium on this right this minute with no preparation. So I think when in, in 2009, the iPhone was invented, and then shortly after that, the smartphone. And I really think corporate America kind of went to a hell in a handbasket at that time. Everybody's now an addict. And it's no different than being a cocaine addict or an alcoholic. We're addicted to these devices. And in meetings, we're not present. And, and we're not giving ourselves time to prepare for meetings. So my nine habits, it's called the Respond, Not React Playbook. And in, uh, it's available on Amazon for $2.99. I'm just trying to and I give it away all the time to people by email in a PDF. I'm just trying to get people to be more proactive and less reactive. I think what's wrong with the world today is that because we're so addicted to these devices, we're constantly reacting to the next text message, the next email, the next meeting, and so many executives, especially in big companies, are going all day, meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting, sometimes with no bio break, they're not getting a lunch break or a snack, they're not getting their liquids regulated, it's just not good, and so if I could wave a magic wand, I would help people give themselves this gift of these, what I call, reserves of time, and that's not my title, that was Thomas Leonard's title, He, he that was part of my training, how to build in reserves of time, and then I developed nine habits that are just basic fundamental time management and life management practices, but they culminate with those three different kinds of of strategic think time, which is no different than the journaling I did when I was 19, 20 years old and had that divinely inspired insight that I needed to get out of Mississippi. I was going to end up, you know, being a workaholic just like my dad. My dad passed away at age 55 from workaholism. And so I'm just so passionate about people having a higher quality of life. He didn't get to see his grandchildren grow up. He didn't even get to meet seven of his nine grandchildren. And um, that's just not right. People don't need to work themselves into an early grave. We can, We need to have higher quality of lives. And we need to have balance in our lives because balance in our life gives us a broader, more balanced perspective. If you take off and go to your children's Little League games this afternoon, tomorrow you're going to have a more balanced perspective in the workplace and you're going to be have new insights and see around corners, things that you couldn't do if you had worked till 7 o'clock tonight, you know, in a frenetic pace. Well, I worked... So- Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, thank you for asking that question. It's such a good question for me. Oh, of course. I mean, and I think the answer, it's very interesting because when you think about it, we are reactive and we are looking for that. It's almost like that next if you have experiments sometimes and you have the animal and they they push one button for this pellet and another button for that pellet and it's Mm -hmm. like we're always looking for that pellet instead of saying is this pellet important? (laughs) You know? Right. 
Hey, is this the right pellet? Do I do right I even want a pellet, or should I be thinking right? about a way to get out of this uh, this environment hey. so that I can right. so that I can I can have a pellet factory? I don't know. Maybe I'm right. a little too off right no. now. But, but no, no, I totally. But that's where I think that's where we have to be, right? So we have to think right. more about like it's it's almost like the day controls us rather than the reverse, right? Exactly, exactly. Instead of us controlling our time, we're just reacting to whoever gets on our calendar and all the back-to-back meetings. I know some executives have 15-minute meetings, and but still back-to-back from 7 a.m. till 6 p.m. Some companies are only calling their meetings at 5 o'clock in the afternoon because everybody's out selling or delivering or whatever. So it's just not healthy, and it's not going. People are not going to be able to bring their best self. No, I found that for myself, and maybe you can talk to this about like how people should be designing their day, because like I know for myself, like I create a to do list, but if something like happens that knocks me off that list i don't really get that worried about it in fact right because you don't have it written down yeah i have it written down and i figure i'll get back to it and sometimes i'll table something and sometimes i'll just say you know what i I gotta get away from this i'll go take a walk i'll go take a swim i'll do something Mm -hmm. to to refocus my brain because i think it's the law of diminishing returns right like people think that i'll tell you what my coach and she was interview number two both to ye mom and uh, I, I want you to react to this because I thought uh-huh. what she said was really brilliant because I was talking to her about my day one time uh-huh. and and she said to me she listened very patiently and and allowed me to kind of detail this meeting that meeting this sales call da, 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 da. anyway she said Jeff you're paid on productivity you're not paid on the time that you spend there that was a game changer for me because I thought it doesn't really matter how many hours I'm putting in. It's what I'm doing with those hours. Right. Right. And what the results you're generating. Right. 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 And if you can generate bigger, bolder, more courageous results, uh, results that are unprecedented, then, then and if you could do that in three hours a day or three hours a week, well, then. Good. That's great. I mean, and 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 I think you do need the downtime in order to you know to generate those kind of results. You can't do that when you're frenetic and frazzled. So let's talk about when you are encountering a client and they come to you for a variety of reasons. Obviously, they're hiring you because they have a need to grow their business. What's the process you take them through? How do you how do you get them to the point that they're able to accept this type of thinking because honestly, it's it's a departure from how a lot of companies work these days. Like you said, right. it's become commonplace for people to go from meeting to meeting to meeting. And right. sometimes people think, well, that's just the way it is. That's the way we have to do business. And here right. you come in and you drop all this knowledge on them and said, you can do it different and you can have it. You can have even better results. So, but how do you get the, first of all, what's your process? And second, how do you get them yeah. to accept that? 
Well, the first thing I have to do is I have to get a commitment from the senior most leadership team because if they don't get trained in my philosophy and if they don't use my tools, then it's just a waste of time and money to bring me into the lower level management teams and, you know, random teams. It's just a waste of time and money because the leaders are going to be, you know, unintentionally sabotaging my philosophy if they're not trained in it and bought in. So start with the senior most leadership team and and I start with some complimentary uh, confidential consultations with, you know, maybe one or two of the random executives that are interested in bringing me in, and then maybe sometimes even a complimentary interactive workshop with the whole leadership team if they're, you know, if they're not bought in yet, just so that they can have an experience of it. And the very first thing I do in every meeting that I facilitate is I hit the pause button and I spend, you know, five to thirty minutes of that time making them celebrate the successes. I call them acknowledgments. And an acknowledgement is different than a compliment. A compliment is never internalized. People slough it off. They say, oh, you know, I was just doing my job. It was no big deal. And that's because it's people's opinion. But an acknowledgement is based on the facts. We go again, go back to the facts and remove the emotion. Based on the facts, and when yeah, they have to tell people how it's made a difference, either for a customer or a client or for a team or for the whole company. And so, by doing that, it's just miraculous things happen. First of all, everybody sits up straighter. They're more engaged all of a sudden because everybody's in a positive mindset. They're feeling valued. They're feeling appreciated. They're being acknowledged, and they. It, there's this energy that takes over because people are excited to be there. And then, most importantly, it's hugely valuable for the individuals. And, and of course, it's fundamental. It's just a basic human need to feel valued and appreciated. So we, of course, want to make everybody feel valued and appreciated. But from a business perspective, what we can start to do is articulate the factors that brought us these successes and start to see the patterns and the trends. So when I work with a leadership team over a period of time, you know, pretty soon, a second and third time I'm with them and we're doing these acknowledgments, we start to see, oh, I see everybody's acknowledging Bob or I see everybody's acknowledging Sally. And we start to dig down and say, well, how can we take their approaches, whether it's to project management or team building or delivering results of any kind, how can we take those successful people's methods and make them just the standard operating procedures, get them operationalized across the whole company? And, um, or how can we give Bob more of these projects and fewer of the ones that he doesn't necessarily deliver on time and on budget? So it's hugely uh, valuable data points that come out of those acknowledgments. And people get addicted to them. And I tend to keep my clients a pretty long time, and it's often just because of those acknowledgments. They, they want me to keep showing up there to facilitate these important discussions, but they want to start with, always want to start with the acknowledgments. It's like it's human nature not to want to celebrate and acknowledge ourselves, but in front of the, you know, in front of their team, they might, you know, with me in the room, they, they're going to be on their best behavior and, they, you know, they would feel safer. So I tell them they can acknowledge the whole company, they can acknowledge each other, they can acknowledge people that aren't even in the room, and they can even, if they're bold and courageous enough, they can even acknowledge themselves. So how do we go about as leaders getting to a point where people are feeling valued and acknowledged. Do you have any action steps that leaders can take to ensure that their team is feeling that really positive environment you just 
describe? Yeah, yes. Well, first to start with acknowledgments, and remember it has to be based on the facts, and it has to tell people how it's made a difference. So that would be the first thing. The second thing, this is what I tell all my technology clients, people at work, they don't really care about the free food and the foosball table and the ping pong table. What they really want is to be successful. Let's figure out how to make your people successful. Let's figure out what we need from each person in their role. How might we measure that? What are the metrics, either hourly, daily? Most people I work with are not, you know, manufacturing anymore, so they're not. Their people aren't building widgets. But if we just assume that they were manufacturing, you know, how many widgets an hour do people need? to produce and what's the quality of those widgets that we need to see and and how can we um, report that easily and track that and, and tabulate that and so that we have management reporting. So that's uh, I help people articulate with each person and the person has ideas that frontline those frontline people, like I said, they, they see things that the executives don't see. So we'll uh, have a process to help those frontline people with their direct supervisor. I call it negotiating expectations to really iron all this out. What are the expectations for this role? How will we measure success? How will we report those successes? How will we reward this person? And I think, Jeff, that the greatest source of stress in the in the world, at home or at work, is what I call unnegotiated expectations. As human beings, we have these expectations, but we can't even articulate them to ourselves. We can just tell people when they didn't meet them. We can beat them up over and over when they can't read our mind and guess at what we're trying to do. And so, again, the strategic think time comes in. You, you know, Mr. Supervisor, you take the strategic think time, and then we'll ask, you know, Betty Sue to take some strategic think time, maybe even ask her to tabulate some things over the next week or two about her work and uh, what she's, what kind of tasks she's performing, and then we'll come together, and it'll be a process. It won't just be a 1, 30, 20, or 30-minute meeting, but you know, we might start with a 20-minute meeting, then we might have a 40-minute meeting, and then we might wrap up with you know another 20-minute meeting. It's not complicated, but it gives everybody a chance to say, well, no, I was actually thinking it should be more like this, or we should measure these components or whatever. All right, well, that let's, makes sense. It, it makes perfect sense. Absolutely. And what I love about it is, is that what we're doing is, and again, it's what you said before, being intentional with yeah. how you are developing your business. And, and that starts with the people that are doing the work. And if they're not feeling acknowledged and feeling like they're a part of everything and that their part matters, you're right. It is people feeling success. And all of those successes, you multiply it over some companies have one employee up to thousands of employees. Or tens of thousands. I've worked right. in Fortune 500 companies with tens of thousands of employees. So, yeah. So, you have those. And, and repeating that success... Those number of times, that's what's going to really move an organization forward. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I could wave a second magic wand, what I would eliminate is layoffs. I know you have to right-size a company, and I have a method to do that without a layoff. But when you have a layoff, it's a, it just wipes out all of the positive things that you've built over that history of that company. And so people are no longer committed to the company. They have no more loyalty. They're not productive. They're, they're not working. They're not building widgets anymore. They're spending their time 
uh, looking for a job. So I think management and executives, they often sabotage their efforts by taking these kind of random approaches like layoffs and right-sizing. And, of course, you have to right-size a company, especially after a merger or acquisition, but you don't have to do it in a harsh, punitive way that's going to shoot yourself in the foot. So what is a good way to do a layoff, then, from your perspective? Well, certainly, if let's think about a merger, because all these companies are merging and acquiring. So, of course, now you have two CEOs, two CFOs, two you know senior VPs of sales, and you have two accounts payable clerks all the way down to the very front line. So what I encourage them to do is to train anybody that's in a supervisory role, you know, from the board chair all the way down to that frontline supervisor who's uh, supervising interns or whatever. I have them trained in my program. It's called the Bring Out the Best in Your People program. It used to be called the Step Up or Step Out program. And I had to rebrand it because I was training multiple layers. My executive clients would say, hey, I got people on the Step Up or Step Out program, and yet I'm training them in this, you know, to put their people on the Step Up or Step Out program. So we got to rebrand this. So I call it to fit with my book, you know, Bring Out the Best in Your People. And it's just about you do, doing the self-leadership thing. So you're bringing your best self. You're getting exercise, you're getting out of the office, you're eating right, and you're spending a little time in nature. And and you by you bringing your best self and then using these strategic think time habits, you're going to be able to better articulate and negotiate those expectations. And then, this is so silly, it's hard to believe that I have to train people in this, but to simply engage their people more effectively and more consistently. So instead of giving Bob a due date of a month or 90 days out with a project, you know, you might, that might still be the time frame, but you could chunk it down and say, okay, it looks like in about 10 days you should be at this level, but I don't even want that supervisor to wait 10 days. I want them to circle back, you know, if they have the meeting to negotiate expectations with Bob about this project today, then tomorrow at noon or early afternoon, I want them to stop by Bob's office or send him a quick text message or instant message. Hey, now, did you have any questions since we spoke? Or do you need any resources? Do you see any obstacles that you're going to need me to help you remove? You know, because a lot of times people need obstacles removed from other departments. They need information. They can't get it, whatever. So it's just that continuous checking in. And if it's like a bookkeeper, you might be checking in with him or her every two or three hours to start. And, you know, if it's an engineer, then it might be every two or three days. But it's that consistent, what can I do to help you? And it has to be a genuine. It can't be a manipulative thing. It has to be genuine and authentic. But when people feel like they're being well supported, they will know and you will know in a week or two whether or not they're going to really be able to be successful. And then nine times out of ten, they will step up. But 10% of the time, and usually that's what we have to lay off is about 10%, 10% of the time, these people will have a wonderful job opportunity someplace else. And they'll have a legitimate reason. I'm going to go to work for one of our customers, or my wife wants to move closer to our, fa- our family, or uh, she, my wife got a promotion, and we have to move to the East Coast. Is always a legitimate reason why they're self selecting out, but they do self-select out. And it's just because the leader, their direct supervisor, took the time and gave them the attention that they deserved and they needed to either step up or step out. 
so it's kind of crazy, but I have clients that I haven't worked with in five or six years. And, and when I, you know, catch up with them over coffee or whatever, if they're in Phoenix and we'll go out for dinner or something, they say to me, Catherine, we talk about you every day because every day we got somebody on the Step Up or Step Out program. So it works every time. Oh, I love that. Well, let's talk about the Athena-based questions. we got a couple of them for you. And you had mentioned the book earlier, but I'm going to bring it out again. And it's kind of a shame that I can't have you comment on all eight principles because yeah, I'm sure... I, I... I could. <laughs> I'm sure. I, I know you could. That would be awesome. But uh, we have, of course, as you mentioned earlier in the interview, there's eight Athena leadership principles from the book Becoming Athena, Eight Principles to Enlighten Leadership by Athena International founder Martha Mertz. And I think there's a good one for you to comment on. Uh, if there was any of the eight for you to comment on, I think this one would be a good one since you've blaze so many trails so to speak advocate fiercely what does that mean to you Catherine mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well growing up in that environment in my household my dad was very strong-willed and uh, he was kind of spoiled he was he was raised almost like an only child his sisters were so much older than him so he had like all these people doting on him so he's kind of spoiled and so I became very codependent and really couldn't find my voice and, and saw the damage in that and how that damaged my life and in my early career and so I started trying to be fearless in the workplace in whether it was an accounting department or an internal audit department or a CPA firm and I, I was waiting too long so we, by the time I would ask the questions it would be the right question to ask but because I was fearful, I was waiting too long and I would bring too much intensity. So they would say, well, that's a good point, Catherine, but they never bought into my ideas or my questions. Like, And they were always about, you know, how can we do this faster, better, smarter, because I'm passionate about continuous improvement and lifelong learning, which are, you know, some of the other principles. So I wasn't effective. So it, was, it took me taking that back to my own strategic think time to say, okay, how can I, I didn't at this time call it this, but now I call it, how can I throw people the ball in a way they can catch it? How can I say everything I need to say, but do it in a way that they can hear it? And somewhere along my uh, life, I got trained to use this language, and I've trained thousands of people to use it, just to say, without emotion, just to say, you know, this doesn't, I just realized this doesn't work for me. What would work for me is blah, blah, blah. And that, and of course, that takes a strategic think time. You first have to articulate what doesn't work for you and articulate what you want to create. But that takes all the emotion. So you're not judging the other person. You're not calling them idiot. You're not saying that they're not good people or whatever. You're just saying, hey, I just noticed this doesn't work for me. But what would work for me is blah, blah, blah. And it could be you know, something about the work product. It could be something around how they communicate with you. It could be something around how they show up in your staff meetings. This could be any, anything at all. But that's really powerful language, I believe. You know, this, I just realized this doesn't work for me. What, what, what would work for me is, and then to say it. And then, and then it, you don't even have to be fearless. You can just get build a muscle and just say it all, you know, be out there all day, every day, laying out that groundwork so that you can then negotiate expectations more effectively. Now, we talked about this off the air, 
And I want to bring this in, if you don't mind. You were talking about, just before the interview started, about how the future is really going to be in the hands of women. And more and more women need to be brought into leadership positions. And then, of course, that's the mission of Athena is to create more women leaders. And maybe you can talk about, from your perspective, how we go about doing that, how women can really elevate other women and really celebrate it and then bring more women up. Well, I think the bottom line for all people of all genders is to do our own work. I say all day, every day, we we all have issues. The question is, do, are we aware that we have issues and are we working on our issues? I was like a caricature of most people in the workplace because I had so many issues, like workaholism and you know working all those nights and weekends and bringing all that intensity. And I had an unmet need to get credit because my dad never gave me credit, and so I was always looking to volunteer for an additional project, hoping and praying they were going to give me credit. But because I was bringing so much intensity, they weren't going to give me credit. They were they were in the corner office putting together a severance package for Catherine. So, so we have to do our own work. We have to... I, sometimes have to beg people to go home and take a blank legal pad and just write out what it is they want. We have to be able to articulate what we want and we have to be able to negotiate expectations to drive towards that. And we just have to do our own work. We have to do our own self-leadership. Bill George is the founder of, I'm not the founder, but the former CEO of Medtronic. He said, he's written a number of books and I love all of his work and he's lecturer at Harvard and all this now in his retirement. And he says, when he saw a leader fail, it was never because they failed to lead their people. It was always because they failed to lead themselves. And in my book, Alignment for Success, uh, Bringing Out the Best in Yourself, Your Teams, and Your Company, it's only five chapters. And two of the five chapters are on self-leadership, mindset, and actions. We have to do the self-leadership. And for women, I think a missing component is often self-confidence. And so I say I have a little simple formula. It's not rocket science. Self-care, the journaling, the strategic think time, the exercise, getting in nature, eating right, getting enough rest. The self-care gives us more self-awareness. So then we're making better choices. We're more articulate in meetings. We're more decisive. And then that gives us the self-confidence because we have more successes because we've been making better decisions and better choices. So we have to help women get that self-confidence so that they can. They, they, have, they have the skills. And, they, I mean, it's just the way I mean, neuroscience tells us this. The women, female brain is wired differently than a male brain. We're naturally more collaborative. We're naturally more inclusive. We're naturally better able to multitask even though I don't, I'm not a big fan of multitasking. But think about your own mom, you know, just talking on the phone about planning the PTA meeting while she's cooking supper and supervising three children's homework. I mean, that's just what women do. Any working mother knows how to multitask. They're a genius at it. So uh, we have to give women opportunities to be introduced to this concept of self-leadership. Because uh, if they can't do the self-leadership, then they're not going to ever really be able to lead big teams effectively without paying a high cost. And women in my generation and the women that I've worked with over the last 24 years in my generation, 
and older, we 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 have this belief that if we just kept our nose clean and worked hard and delivered results, that we would be rewarded for that. And there's nothing further from the truth. We were never going to be rewarded. It's the young guys that come in and they start hanging out in the CEO's corner office shooting the breeze about the football game and the soccer game. And then all of a sudden they're being invited to play golf with clients and the CEO. And then they're promoted. And then it's the women that have to train those young guys. <laughs> I've seen that thousands of times. So we have to give these women opportunities to do the self-leadership. And sometimes, you know, women are disdainful when I talk about this. They'll say, well, that, I'm good at stress management. I don't need that. I'm like, no, this is so much bigger than stress management. It's so much deeper. It's really getting to your authentic core so that you can, you know, share, you know, what's most important to you. Well, let's talk about some resources, and I'm going to mention some resources that people should plug into. Of course, the Halpin Companies, and you can check that out at halpincompany.com. Again, that's H-A-L-P-I-N company.com. We're going to link to your company, of course, in the notes, and there's a way that people can get a confidential and complimentary kind of assessment from your team. So again, we're going yeah. to link to that. We're going to link to your books, Good. of course. And Good, oh, of course, yeah, definitely. But some resources beyond that, Catherine, that you think our audience might find inspirational, what would you suggest that they plug into? Well, a book I've referred to thousands of um, women has been Julia Cameron's book. It's really a workbook. It's called The Artist's Way. And Julia was a screenwriter in Hollywood, and she was an alcoholic. And she had this vision of herself being like Ernest Hemingway, drinking and writing. And she got sober for a variety of reasons. Of course, she saw she needed to get sober. And she thought she wasn't going to be able to nurture her creativity without the alcohol. So she developed this rigorous program of self-care and includes writing three pages a day. She wants you to get out of bed, get a cup of coffee or tea, sit down, and write three full pages. And she says, if you don't know what to write about, write, I don't know what the heck to write about. I don't know what the heck to write about. And things will come up. You know, like, I'm agitated about Bob, what Bob said in that meeting yesterday. And so then all of a sudden you can craft a script to go back and address that with Bob. So Julia Cameron's work is really great. And now she has the artist way for the workplace. She has all kind of workbooks. And then Bill George, I love him. I have all his books. And he has one called True North to help people find their true north. And then just to do the darn self-care and track it, don't just say I'm going to go to the gym or I'm going to you know, walk in my neighborhood. Be specific and intentional. Say I'm going to walk you know, four times a week in my neighborhood and I'm going to cover you know, four miles in um, 30 minutes. So that's going to be a pretty good pace. That's going to get your heart rate elevated. And then track it on the refrigerator or in your diary or in your calendar so you know whether you did it or not. And then the think time to take those, you do those nine habits of the strategic think time to get everything out of your head so that you don't have to manage anything and then go from there. Arrive early for meetings so you have time to prepare. Think about what the heck is the purpose of the meeting. What role do I need to play? So those are a few resources. I'm, I'm a book person, so I could give you a long list of books, but uh, I think Bill, Bill uh, George has some really good ones and of course I'm... Um, 
bias toward my own. Well, and I love it. And we're going to have links to all of that stuff. So that's great. And thank you for that extensive list. Uh, It's wonderful. Let's talk about you and turning the mic over to you. As you know, on this podcast, we start with the guest, we end with the guest. And now I'm just going to hand the mic over and say to you, Catherine Halpin of the Halpin Companies, again, thank you very much for being here and just have you address the audience with whatever you want to talk to them about as we close out the podcast. The floor, once again, is yours. Oh, thanks. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Okay, well, I'm going to cover my nine habits real quick, and then they might not even need to buy that ebook uh, for $2.99. So the first one is to arrive early, like I said, so you can have a chance to collect your thoughts and um, think about what's the purpose of the meeting that you're going into and how can you have time to just chat people up before the meeting and try to strengthen those connections. And the second one is to do what I call a brain dump. It's a more comprehensive approach to doing a to-do list. And the third one is to make sure everything gets in your calendar, so you give yourself a pause every day to make sure everything's in that calendar. And then the third one is how, I mean, excuse me, um, that was the third one. The fourth one is what I call a commitments review. And that's how you start getting out of the reactive mode and and get into the proactive and strategic mode. And that's just two simple things. You scroll through your calendar. What do I have coming up tomorrow? What do I have coming up the next day? What do I need to be prepared for? And if you do this daily, see, then all of a sudden, you know, in a week, you're looking out a month or two. What do we have coming up next month? What do we have coming up next quarter? What should we be thinking about? What should we be preparing for? And then it also gives you a chance to get stuff off your calendar. Like, I shouldn't even be in that meeting. Bob should be in that meeting because he's a subject matter expert. So it, it starts to create the white space, and it starts to help you be more strategic. And then the fifth one is project work time because even if you're the governor of the state of Arizona, you have to do certain things. Everybody, everybody board chairs, CEOs, everybody has to do certain things. And I try to get people to do that between, say, 7 a.m. and 6 p.m., more normal business hours, so they can have their early morning free and they to think strategically or go to the gym, and they can have their evenings free with their family, their loved ones. And get that real rejuvenation. And then the, the sixth one is, this is a new, I used to only have only eight habits, and this is new in the last few years I added this. It's five Ps of, of planning a meeting, because like I said, I think meetings have just deteriorated. We, we, people show up with the, they don't know what the purpose of the meeting is, they don't have an agenda in advance, people don't come prepared, they're spending their time answering emails, and so it's just a total waste of time and money. And then six, seven, and eight, or um, uh, no, eight, uh, seven, eight, nine, or the strategic think time. And the first one is to solve problems because we all have a challenge of the day. And and then the number eight is to delegate more effectively because none of us are naturally born good, good delegators. We have to get clear in our own mind what we want from Bob so we can articulate that and negotiate that. And then the, the ninth one is what Peter Singay calls the creative tension. We, he says we have to be grounded in our current reality, but we also have to think about our vision for the future. If we just think about the vision, then it's just pie in the sky and we're not going to get real excited. But, but and if we just stay focused on the, uh, and grounded in the current reality, if sometimes it's so depressing we can't get out of bed. But we 
have to manage the tension, he calls it creative tension, between where we are and where we want to be and how might we close that gap. And that's how I got out of Mississippi, journaling about those things, and that's how I grew my business. I would do little spreadsheets in my journal. What, are, what is my revenue today? What do I want my revenue to be? What's that variance? And then I would write about how might I close that variance. And then how many hours a week am I working? How many hours a week do I want to work? How can I close that variance? And so that's, those are my nine habits. They're not rocket science. And they're not anything difficult, but they're so powerful, so powerful, so powerful. And that's a powerful way to close out the interview. Catherine Halpin of the Halpin Companies at halpincompany.com, H-A-L-P-I-N, company.com. Thank you for dropping so much knowledge on us tonight. Oh, really just appreciate you being here. I mean, it's a oh, definitely, uh, definitely appreciated because I'm sure you've got a lot going on. Well, you're so kind, Jeff. It was an honor and a privilege for me to be able to share with your audience. I'm so passionate about the Athena Foundation and um, so passionate about the good work. So it's just an honor to be part of this. So thank you. On the next episode of Women Really Mean Business, presented by Athena International, when Allie Parrish's work got stagnant, she transitioned her career to more work she loved. In this episode, she talks about making your transition if you are feeling similar and what you need to do and how you should think about this process. Here's a little bit from Allie. One of the clearest ways to gut check yourself and see where you're at is how you feel on Sunday night, knowing that Monday morning or that your work day is coming ahead. And if you're really not looking forward to that, or if you feel like you're just going through the mundane steps, then that's when you can identify that a change needs to be made. When you share the show on social media, and we hope you do, use the my Athena hashtag, lowercase my, and then Athena is all uppercase. Hashtag my Athena. Let's share this with the world.